Welcome to the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. This is episode two of the Protectors Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Piccolo. This is from the Burning Shield, the Jason Shackerley story, written by Landon Napoleon. When a taxi smashed into police officer Jason Shackerley's patrol car, the fireball that consumed the vehicle should have killed him. But by a series of small miracles, Shackerley survived. Dying would have been easier. As he would learn only after his own horrific ordeal, law enforcement officers across the country were perishing in similar fires, trapped inside burning Ford Crown Victoria police interceptors. Schechterly, who began a long, gruesome, and gut-wrenching battle back to health, would also take on Ford Motor Company to stop the heinous and ultimately preventable deaths. I welcome Jason to the show today. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you having me. Hey, no problem at all. I'm I'm glad to have you. I mean, your story is very inspiring. I read it. I read through it on the internet. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, the things you've gone through. Yeah, it's been quite a life. Let's backtrack a little bit. You uh, you have a family, right? I do have a family. I'm married, and I have three children. How old are your kids? My daughter is 25, and then I have two sons. One is 20, and the other one is 16. Oh, really cool. Any of them following your footsteps? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think my youngest one, there is potential for him to become a police officer. Maybe he's even interested on the federal level, uh, you know, something like the ATF or United States Marshals, they're fantastic jobs. Um, maybe he'd be a firefighter, but right now he's pretty <laughs> focused on, uh, playing college baseball. This is only, uh, goal for the immediate future and he's he's carving out a pretty good path for himself so but the other two my daughter is going to be a psychologist she's in uh, a doctorate program right now and my middle son is in hotel restaurant management oh really cool really cool yeah Yeah, i've got my kids are real little (laughs) i'm a few years away from there (laughs) well i started young and let me tell you don't blink because it it goes by so I can't believe in just a couple years I'm going to be an empty nester. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I, there's nothing like being a father. I mean, there's absolutely nothing like fatherhood. So it's gotten me through so much. And I think you and I could probably talk all day long about it. I love it. It's the best yeah, thing in the world. Yeah. It's the best thing in the world, I agree. Ah, that's great. So you're living in Phoenix now? I do. I live in Phoenix. I was born and raised uh, here in the Valley. I mean, when you look at, at the Valley, it's – there's a bunch of cities that are just kind of jammed together. I consider everything to be Phoenix because they do all run together. But I grew up out in the west part of the valley, and now we live right here in north central Phoenix. Oh, really cool. So uh, I read through your book. Uh, besides the same first name, we have a lot of similar stories from our childhood. We grew up around yeah. the same time era. Especially I read the story, when you grew up, your brother gave you a, Desi, a Daisy Red Rider BB gun. My brother did the same thing with me, and I caused <laughs> havoc everywhere with that thing. Seriously. I mean, I got my kids one when they were younger. They didn't fully understand, and I just remember thinking and telling them, you have not lived until you had a Red Rider. 
you just it's part no, of it's growing the only up. thing. It's one of the great one of the greatest things ever. I yeah. love growing up what I did. <laughs> and it's one pump too. It's not like you remember the old uh, Crossman air <laughs> rifles where you, you pump yeah. that sucker up like eight times, ten times, and it goes through a wall. This, you know, yeah. the Daisy Red Rider is awesome. You can just plink all day with that. Yeah, that was the best. I would. Uh, you remember that old Rifleman show? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, just for the audience, the Rifleman show came out in I think the sixties or seventies. And yeah. what he did was he had this like sawed off lever action uh, Winchester, and it was just like the Daisy Red Rider. Like I made my Daisy Red Rider just like it. I saw it off the end of it. I saw it off the front of it. I plugged in the holes and I made myself a little uh, Daisy Red Rider <laughs> rifleman. And I even kept it in a little cardboard holster I made. It was awesome. That's fantastic. I love it. Uh, and then uh, I just have to tell the audience, Jason has the same taste in music as I do. Uh, the Ario Speedwag and the Journeys. It always brings you back to the 80s. It's crazy. Man, there's nothing better. So many time stamps. And, uh, <laughs> I'm a huge, I grew up on country music and never got away from that. Uh, I, love, I still love country, especially old country, but there's something about that 80s rock and roll. The I air know. Every or time. The, you know, the ballads, the anthems. Yeah, it can take you, like I can still smell things from, from those days or, or see where I was. And I'm going back to when I was like nine, 10 years old. I it's know. Just, it's the best. It's the best. It's, a, it's like, I'm, whenever I get in the, uh, the shower, I'm like, Alexa, play eighties pop. And it's like, bam, here it goes. Ario Speedwagon <laughs> journey. That's what I find myself doing. When I like when I'm on my way to give a speech or something, if I need uh, a certain mood or a certain way to get pumped up, it's, it's definitely, you know, it could be anything from journey to Ario to, to Def Leppard, to uh, Scorpion. There's just so much from back then. I know. That, that, that's my road trip music. Whenever I go anywhere <laughs> for over two hours, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing on Spotify or whatever, saying, you know, 80s music. Throw me little Phil Collins yeah. on there, you know. <laughs> yeah, currently right now, if I went on a road trip and did not touch my iPod, I would hear a different song for nine straight days. Oh, yeah, it's the same with I, I just can't imagine this, this stuff. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You know, and back in the day, it was like, <laughs> the mixtapes back in the day, our kids will never know. <laughs> oh my God, I know. Trying to explain to them, like, hugging the radio, praying they would play your favorite song, and praying that the DJ would shut up while the intro was uh, on so you could hit play and record uh-huh. on, your, <laughs> on your cassette. Oh my gosh. You know, <laughs> moving around a lot, I go through a lot of boxes, and I, I find these old mixtapes I made to, like, girlfriends or for road trips or oh, whatever, yeah. and I'm like, oh my oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> now I don't have anything to play him on. <laughs> yeah, our, yeah, our kids see one of those. They're like, "Is this from the Civil War or something? What is this?" <laughs> That's what they're like. <laughs> oh my gosh! And me, I was going through my uh, comic book collection the other day, and my my kids are like, "What? What are these?" I'm like, uh, "Comic books? <laughs> Crazy! Yeah. That's different." So then well, we, uh, you and I, also went on to the military right after high school. You know, kind of sounds like you bopped around like I did for a year, and then you went in. So yeah, uh, yeah. Tell me about the air right, force. Right out of here. What's that? Tell me about your time in the air force. I when I got out of high school, I was pretty decent at golf. Got a scholarship to a small college and uh, here in Phoenix, and I uh, just thought that was a normal path. What I wanted to do, and I knew back then that I wanted to be a police officer, and I needed some serious structure and discipline in my life. And I knew I wasn't. I, mean, I could play golf, but <laughs> not at the level that was worth uh, 
what I was doing at the time. And so, yeah, just one day I said, you know what? I am going to follow the footsteps of the rest of the men in my family. My father, my grandfather, both been in the Air Force. And so I went down to the recruiter's office and signed up, and there it started. That's awesome. I have to read this from your book. Okay. Where where would he be stationed? There were many great possibilities. Maybe Italy like Dad, Dover, Washington, D.C., Southern California. Instead, he heard, Airman Shekerly in Cyrillic, Turkey. What? You've got to be kidding me. I don't know where Turkey is. What's in Turkey? Or why would anyone want to go to Turkey? And then you were, quote, unquote, lucky to switch with someone to go to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Now, this is coming from Phoenix, like, you know, balmy, nice to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Come on, tell me about that. That was an interesting time. I mean, I still remember being at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And, you know, we're all young and scared enough. And it's just been through through training. And uh, I was security police in the Air Force. So the security police academy, you go through basic at Lackland and then you stay at Lackland. And then, you know, doing like the final four weeks at Fort Dix, New Jersey. But anyway, when it came time for assignments, yeah, they're just going down the list alphabetically and filling in spots. And when I heard Turkey, I was overcome with a little bit of anxiety. I'm 18 years old. I'm like, who the hell is Turkey? I'm not going to Turkey. (laughs) And uh, then the instructor at the end said, if anybody wants to swap, you're allowed to. And I mean, I think I was the first person to jump up. And I'm like, anybody going what we call CONUS, continental United States. I said, who wants to go to Turkey? And this one girl stood up. She goes, I'll switch with you. And I remember not knowing where she was going and not caring. I just knew that she was somewhere in the United States. And then she said, Grand Forks. And yeah, looking back at all these years later, it's minus 40 there with the windshield. But <laughs> I, I got to tell you, the nicest people, the nicest community, so safe back then. Nobody locked their doors, windows. It it, it was awesome, and you know, like choices in life, I have no idea where I'd be right now had I taken that turkey assignment. Um, we, you know, you, when you're standing at that crossroads, you you never know what's what's down that road because you didn't go down it. But looking back on it, it was cold. I have a lot of funny stories. Slipping New Year's Eve, slipping on the ice. I was walking around well, one of the nuclear sites and uh, on post checking things, and I slipped on the ice, fall on my M16, and shatter my collarbone oh. New Year's Eve. And I remember laying, I remember laying on that cold ground. And you know, when you're hurt like that, it's, your body just kind of knows. And I'm just laying there like, yeah, I, I, I can't really get up right now. And I remember thinking, this is where I'm at. I mean, I'm now, by this time, I'm like 19. And I'm like, I am in the minus 40. It's a New Year's Eve. And I just slipped and fell on the ice. What? what? Oh, I'm just picturing it right now. I'm you just picturing it. That big oh, old dude, M16, too. Oh. It was brutal. Yeah, I just slipped. My feet right off front of me, fell. It was slung over my shoulder, and just, you're, you know, your collarbone yep. can snap when the wind changes direction. It doesn't take much. Oh, my and gosh. they heal. They heal no problem, but it was still like, are you kidding me right now? I, I wish I could explain the Arctic tundra of Grand Forks, North Dakota, because my best friend lived up oh, there. Bro. My godsons are from up there. And we drove out there one winter and we, they closed the highway down. I'm like, who closes a highway down? And then they got these 10 foot drifts coming across. I'm like, there's no way. No way. 
<laughs> well, there's not a hill or a tree. I mean, it, the wind is what you can't truly uh. appreciate unless you're there. And the wind, you know, I love when weather people are like, oh, it's two degrees, but with the wind chill, it's minus 30. Well, then it's minus 30. Yeah, it's not two degrees. I don't want to hear that it's two <laughs> degrees. It's minus 30, and you can't get away from it. Oh, so my God. I spent two beautiful winters there. Oh, better you than me. So you get out of the Air Force, and I love I love this part of yeah. your story here. I'm going to read this to the audience. Since I was 16 years old, in 1988, all I'd wanted to be was a Phoenix police officer. Well, that and a professional golfer, as you'll see. When I was in high school, my older brother, Michael, graduated a police academy and was a full authority Phoenix police officer. Now, I got to throw in there that I also have an older brother named Michael, so I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> wow. And then he goes on to say, I can still remember seeing him in his uniform for the first time, being completely in awe and having my own dream of put in motion. That's who I want to be. The overall effect was almost too much for a teenager to process. The uniform, the polished badge, the crisp utility belt with sidearm and other tools of the trade, right down to the black tactical boots with a high gloss shine. I wanted all of it and the larger duty and responsibility. Now, that gives me chills because that's exactly when I was a kid growing up, I wanted that same experience. And I could imagine you at 16 going, I want to be a cop. And then – Yeah, that's <clears throat> – Oh, God, no, you go ahead. It's, uh, I remember growing up with such a deep respect and infatuation for people in uniform, but especially law enforcement. But at a young age, I didn't think, I was so naive, I didn't think just anybody could do that job. I didn't actually think you could just fill out an application and, and as long as you were squared away, you could go do this job. So I was really looking up to them. And then when my brother, because he's nine years old, when he did it and, and graduated and was wearing that uniform, that's when I was like, yeah, that's that's definitely what I want to do is, is be wearing that uniform, especially in the city that I had grown up in. Now, nah, that's that's incredible. So what did I feel like to get the offer? Finally, I mean, it looks like you, you tried a couple times, but then you get an offer. Your dreams are coming true. Well, what, what did it? It actually, I mean, I think all law enforcement officers out there that truly do it for the right reasons and have a calling, the honor, the humility behind the badge, uh, they all understand what an incredibly rewarding career it is, no matter what takes place or what is said in the, uh, by the media or by people who don't do the job. And for me, I did try a few times and it's, it's a difficult job as to get as it should be. It is a difficult hiring process on a lot of steps and you've got to pass a lot of tests. You've got to be squared away mentally, emotionally, physically. And so I, at that young age with some immaturity, there were times that I tried and failed and I had actually moved on from that dream. And I had a great job. I was working for Arizona Public Service, one of the two main power companies here in the Valley. I was making good money, good benefits, providing for my new young family. And it was actually the death of another officer on March 26th of 1999. Uh, an officer named Mark Atkinson was shot and killed in the line of duty here in Phoenix. And that was the moment that I knew that it was my calling. And I was 26 years old at the time. And then when I applied that time, 
I just sailed right through the hiring process. That's awesome. I mean, at least you get in, you get the badge. What happens when you get to the street? I mean, I remember that rookie feeling when I was at a border patrol. Isn't it just bizarre? All of a sudden you have all this responsibility. Yeah. And it goes from, you know, you, you got all this build up through the academy where it's, it's hard work. It's sleepless nights. It's a ton of stress just trying to get through the academy and learn the job. But also at the end of the scenario, at the end of an exercise, at the end of the day, there's somebody blowing a whistle. There's somebody telling you, okay, it's over. And all of a sudden when I graduated and I took that oath, I realized there was no no more of that. Nobody's going to blow a whistle. Nobody's going to tell you the scenario is over. It's like real. And when you're, when you are tasked with the power to take people's, freedoms away. You can enter people's homes and businesses. You can take children away from their families. I mean, if you sit back and really think about the awesome responsibility, it is very humbling. And along with that, you know, I'm not going to lie, I was, I was a little bit scared when I, the first day I went to work and I was like, you know, am I ready for this? Can I do this job? And um, But then very quickly you get into the flow of what's being said on the radio and the jargon and the camaraderie that comes with it. And, you know, I worked in a big city, so you were not out there alone. Like a lot of these officers in rural places and, you know, making traffic stops and going on calls by themselves. I always had a lot of people around me. And, uh, it, it, I quickly adapted and just absolutely fell in love with every single call that I could go on. No, and, and you you mentioned a good thing, the camaraderie. And in your book, you also talk yeah. about the dark humor. And I'm like, that is so evident when it comes into law enforcement. And I think that's going to bring yes. us on to your next story of, of how you get what happened next. And I think that the audience would like to hear that. And I, I know you've probably told it a million times, but if you don't mind telling us what happened uh, when you were on duty. Well, I have told it a lot and I, I, I do it for a living. Uh, I absolutely love sharing my story. Um, I, yeah, I was 14 months into my career, just got off probation. I had switched squads to better days off, better hours. I was working with my best friend and officer named Brian Chapman and life just, man, it couldn't have gotten any better. And I look back on those days, 28 years old, my parents were alive and, healthy and have been married. All four of my grandparents were alive. I mean, I, I had spent 28 years with almost no adversity other than little things. Like I mentioned, breaking my collarbone or not getting the job the first time I applied, little things, but nothing big. And I went to work, uh, ironically, March 26th of 2001, two years to the day after Mark Jackson was killed. The reason I became a police officer it was on his anniversary. And I was responding to a call about 1130 PM, an emergency call. And I had lights and siren on, but I got to an intersection with a red light. So you got to, you know, you got to come to a complete stop. People know you're running what we call code three. And it takes maybe a second and a half to clear an intersection. But just as I was going to proceed, my patrol car was struck from behind by a taxi cab. The driver was suffering an epileptic seizure at the time. And uh, he was going over 100 miles an hour and slammed in the back of my Ford Crown Victoria, causing it to burst into flames. Um, I was knocked unconscious. I don't have any memory. Never saw him coming. Never felt the impact. And 
miracle, fate, luck, whatever you, your personal beliefs and feelings are you want to attribute it to. But my car traveled 270 feet through the intersection wow. and came to rest, came to rest about 50 feet from a Phoenix fire truck. They were right there in the intersection and were able to go to work. Uh, just absolutely heroic measures that were taken by them, a couple of police officers, one civilian who was on scene and they got me out of the car in about 90 seconds. And another miracle, I was two and a half miles away from what I would argue is the best burn center in the United States, our Cope County Medical Center. And they got me to the hospital in less than eight minutes. So I had suffered burns to 43% of my body, my neck, head, and face being the worst of fourth degree, which is a term I hadn't heard up to then. I thought fourth degree or third degree was the worst you can have. Fourth degree means it's down the last layers of muscle into the bone, my shoulders to my hands, the tops of my thighs were burned. Uh, my bulletproof vest did an amazing job protecting my chest, my stomach, and my back. And uh, that went a long way to save my life. If your chest gets burned really bad, it's very constrictive and just kind of crushes, crushes in. You can't breathe, and it's very difficult to survive that. So the bulletproof vest took good care of me. And I ended up uh, in a coma for a very long time. Uh, and, that, yeah, that started the whole new chapter uh, with all the injuries and trying to figure out if I was even going to live and then how I would possibly recover and regain any ability to live this precious life that we're given. Yeah, and I imagine you had three little kids at the time. Or did you have two kids and then your, your son was born right after I had two yeah. kids. Two kids. Yeah, I had a, uh, a seven-year-old daughter. My son, Zane, he turned three while I was in a coma. So as you can imagine, he he went through a lot. And, uh, you know, that's one of the tougher parts because when you look at your kids, when you have something bigger than yourself to live for, it's, it's wonderful and it makes you – it gives you strength. It gives you a foundation to build on. But also with that, you carry a ton of, of guilt. Because it wasn't their fault. They didn't put their name on the application. They didn't want to be a cop. And they certainly had nothing to do with me getting hurt. But they're the ones who suffered the most from it. So that that was that made it difficult. And, you know, that's one thing that just really clicked with me right there, what you just said. It's the guilt. You know, it's like you're like, oh, my gosh, all of a sudden now I'm hurt. How does this affect them? Not like, hey, what's going on with me? It's more of like, hey, how does this affect my family? I got little kids. What are they going to do? Oh, my gosh. So I can imagine, you know, it's right. not just you. It's a lot of people that go through that. But your story is just, I mean, that's that's, that's incredible one to, to try to get from one day you're healthy, busting chops with your partners, whole career ahead of you, and then the next day it's just a switch. It's a complete 180-degree switch. In an instant, and you never know from when or where – it's coming. I certainly, uh, I mean, the, the, that's the last thing that I was worried about. The last thing that I thought about, I, I knew I could be injured, of course, the line of duty, but you could be injured at any time doing anything. It's not, you don't have to be, uh, doing law enforcement or wearing a uniform, but obviously you're, uh, maybe in more at risk or adverse situations wearing those uniforms. But, this thing was when I was told what had happened. It was the, like 
wow, of all the things that can happen, you, you have to be kidding me. And that, that took a, a while for me to come to terms with. And then, yeah, uh, because of the severity of my injuries and all that it entailed, the drastic appearance change and disfigurement, the loss of half of my fingers, the loss of my eyesight uh, for a very long time. There was just so much to it. And I've always said it's easier to go through something than to watch somebody you love go through it. And for a child, I mean, you talk about true unconditional love along with you're supposed to be taking care of them. And all of a sudden now you're reduced to nothing. And again, it's not their fault. So they, that was without a doubt the, the toughest times. And I mean, the beauty of life uh, might be a cliche to say that time heals, but there's a reason things are cliches because they're true and people say them a lot. I hate when people say, oh, that's just a cliche. Well, no, it's, it's because, because it's, it's true. Because it means something. Yeah. <laughs> because it's true and it works. I love cliches. But all these years later, we did go on to have a third child. But my kids now are living very profound, meaningful lives. They are filled with compassion and understanding. They treat other people incredibly well. They are successful. And I attribute all of it to their adversity that they had to go through and how they were able to overcome it. And, you know, I kind of look at, I have one simple goal every day. And, it's amazing how this will get me through any room I'm in, any meeting I attend, phone call I take, uh, store I'm in, whatever. I just want to leave it better than I found it. And if you do that every single day, it, it truly is amazing how good you feel and the positive momentum that comes from that. But I look at my kids and I'm like, you know what? I could die right now or I could die in 40 years and I'm going to leave the whole world better than I found it. And that's pretty comforting. That feels pretty darn good. And that's, uh, so I give them a lot of credit in turning their adversity around and then helping me gain the perspective and the comfort that has gotten me the, the happiness that I feel today. No, and that's, that's what I love about your story. I'm going to, I can say that a million times about your story because it inspired me. I'm like, I read it. I started watching some of your interviews and I'm thinking, I'm like, this could be me. And I'm like, what would I do in that situation? You know, and I just, and then I, I listen to how inspiring you are and then how you didn't let this stop. Now, just for the audience, just so the audience knows, and we can go into that story too, is that wasn't the end of your police career. I mean, you went on to become a homicide detective. No, no, I was, uh, that was the two things, my family and my career. And I had a lot of doctors and I had a lot of friends who were, we were very honest. It was just like, Chase, you're, you're not going back to work and it, it's okay. You know, just thankfully you're alive. I just was like, no, you don't understand. This isn't about, this is who I am. This is my call. I am going to honor Mark Atkinson. I'm going to honor why I even put my name on that application that day. I am not going to allow that feeling to to be taken away because that's my choice. I can walk around and say, why me? Why did I give up a, a great job with a lot of money with APS to become a cop? Why did I, uh, you know, I was finding my business at an intersection. Why did this happen to me? That All that kind of stuff, 
while it's easy to think and that's the easy way out, it's not going to do me any good. Uh, certainly not going to do my support system any good. I made the choices that led me to where I was, and I'm going to make the choices now to take me where I need to go. So my career meant a lot to me. And yeah, I was detective certified prior to my accident, and I had a dream uh, from, I mean, from day one of the academy. I knew I was never going to promote, never had an interest, uh, probably from the what I knew about the military. I just knew what I wanted to do, and I want to be a detective. I want to be a homicide detective, speaking for victims who can't speak for themselves, working with families that are affected by that kind of violence. It's an incredible honor and maybe not a job that is for everybody. Not, it's hard to say. A lot of people wouldn't understand. I don't mean this in a grotesque way, but I got a tremendous amount of joy and inspiration being a homicide detective and not because I enjoyed seeing people who were murdered or things like that, but to be the one to work those cases, to be able to say, I'm going to help you. I am going to solve this. And when you're thinking about the evil that exists and you have an opportunity to try and better the world, get that off the streets and prevent somebody else's pain and suffering in the future. Oh man, I tell you what, I love being a homicide stick. Well, that's the thing about when you grew up uh, with the cops and robbers. The robbers are the bad guys, and you're actually out there doing something to stop evil. You know, it's almost like good versus evil. Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of people that aren't in that realm of law enforcement, military, first responders, they don't understand that there just really are some bad people out there and some bad people that need to be stopped. So, yeah. Yeah, there are some bad people out there. And it's maybe because I'm getting older, but when I see things on the news and when I, I talk to some of my friends about cases they're working on. It truly shocks me how human beings can devalue somebody else's life and take somebody else's life. You're talking about life. There's nothing to compare it to, and you have no right to take somebody else's life. Obviously, in situations with law enforcement, the military, when somebody when somebody's trying to take your life and it's you against them, then Hey, you go home to your family. I'm talking about, like I saw in the news the other day, a woman who had just got married was working at a Valero gas station, and two guys walk in on videotape. They don't say anything. They just shoot her and kill her and take 200 bucks. And I, it, it's mind-boggling. I get so fired up, I can't even find the words that there are people like that in this world that will do that and ruin a family, take a life, and yeah, be a part of putting those people away or getting them off the streets is it's almost a magical feeling because it's so disturbing and so not right. It's not okay. No, not at all. I just, I, I, that same thing drives me absolutely crazy and I, I can't even watch some of these shows anymore. I'm just, it's just stick to my Netflix with the kids watching kids shows anymore. You know, <laughs> stay away from the news. I, I, agree. I agree. So after you, after your career was over, you retired and then um, I read this is was inspired where you were given a speech in 2010 and a yes. firefighter came up to you and yes. he said something to you. What was that? Well, I was actually a New York firefighter. I had been doing my story had been covered on the news a lot. I'd gone back to work, had another baby. I carried the torch. I, I, there was a lot of things that kept my story in the news. And 
people were inviting me to speak and my story hadn't evolved much. And I really, to be honest with you, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew nothing about public speaking. But this, and I was owning a business at the time, not emergency medical transportation. Uh, you know, again, another career and just trying to move on with my life. And I had a New York firefighter uh, come up to me after a speech and uh, I can't really express properly my connection with firefighters. There's a deep love and gratitude because of what I went through and what these firefighters did for me that night. So I'm, I'm, I'm just deeply connected right away. And this guy, he simply said to me, uh, with a tear in his eye, he said, Jason, I was at 9-11, lost a bunch of my friends, and I'm currently going through a divorce, and you changed my life today. And he walked away. And almost like the day that Mark Axon was killed and that feeling, I, how I was moved, I called my partner, uh, my business partner, and I said, I know what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life, and I'm selling my half of this business, and uh, I began my full-time public speaking career that day. Wow. And, you know, it, I'm telling you, man, this your story is hands down one of the, the best I've read. I mean, it's one of the most inspiring stories I've read, and that's why Thank I had so to – I mean, you're my second podcast guest. I don't know if you get a chance, if you could read my uh, first guest was Benjamin Breckheimer and his, another inspiration. I don't even, I'm so honored to have guests like this. This is incredible. Um, Thank you very much. You had a quote in here. I wanted to read that about, and it was really good. It's like your quote is life really is 10% what happens to you. And it's 90% how you react to it. And a little bit yes. of perspective goes a long way for all of us. And that is so true. I mean, yes. wow. I, I don't remember who uh, actually came up with that quote. Uh, a lot of people use it. It's probably one of my top three favorites, if not my favorite of all time. And I use it for sure. And I, and I, and I live it. But, you know, the key thing I think that people need to understand, there's, there's a difference between your attitude and how you react to things and then perspective. And, there's there's another old saying, and this I don't I hope this doesn't come across as as callous or or I'm not thinking right, but there's an old saying that says I once complained that I had no shoes until I saw a man with no feet. Now you can be thankful that you have feet. You can be you can have that perspective, but if you then are like well, his problems are worse than mine, so I'll just continue to walk around with no shoes and step on broken glass and hot asphalt. That makes no sense. You can't insult what you're going through. You can't minimize your own adversity. And I, the my least favorite thing to hear when people are when I'm done with my presentation is somebody will say, "Oh, I thought I had a problem until I heard you or saw you," and I'm like, "Oh, then you missed." You missed the point. You missed the point of the story. I don't care what you're going through today. Your car didn't start. You have a flat tire. You can't get to work. Your, your kid failed a test or smoked his first joint or you and your wife got in a fight all the way up to you have cancer. You caught on fire. I mean, you cannot compare yours to somebody else's because it will 
take away from your opportunity to get over it. So perspective is great. And I, you know, I can look at somebody in a wheelchair and be thankful that I still have the ability to walk. I look at my kids and it makes everything I've gone through completely worth it because it's a lot. So perspective is great. Do not take away from what you're going through. And what you're going through is only 10% of the problem. 90% of the problem is your attitude. But if you have a good attitude, it is, it's absolutely crazy what you can accomplish. Your human spirit is made to shine so bright. You have to give it a, got to give it a chance. No, you do. I mean, and then you don't, you haven't stopped with the public speaking. You also went on to be, you're a spokesman for the Serenity Hospice. Yeah, Serenity Hospice. I went through the hospice process a little less than two years ago with my dad. And believe it or not, I keep talking about March 26, March 26, 1999, Mark Axel's killed, and I moved to be a police officer. March 26, 2001, I have my accident on this, this is my life in the line of duty. March 26, 2017, my dad passes away. I mean, it's uh, unbelievable. And my father was, without a doubt, my absolute best friend, just the, the man I admired most and loved, and I was lucky to have him into my mid-40s. A lot of people do not have that gift. Um, and uh, he was able to make his own choices and uh, transition in a comforting, peaceful way. And I was able to just be a son and give that thanks and, and love to him and not have to worry about uh, things that, you know, family shouldn't have to worry about as they're uh, losing a loved one. So I learned a lot about the hospice, the value of hospice and the, uh, People have misconceptions. Hospice doesn't mean it's not like going to the vet and being put to sleep for an animal. The hospice is about care and comfort and taking care of families. And so I just absolutely fell in love with it. And and that's why I'm very proud now to be the spokesperson for Serenity Hospice and be able to share what I went through with other people and encourage them to to use uh, the services that are available to them. But I do do my public speaking full time. I travel. All across the country. Last week, I was in Atlantic City speaking to the New Jersey Firemen's Benevolent Association. Then I did a corner symposium in Lafayette, Louisiana. That I did a financial meeting in Orange County. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm going to Anchorage, Alaska, in a few weeks for the first time. I'm going to New York City in a couple weeks, and I just I absolutely love the people I meet, the places I visit, and being able to sharing our story. It's a, it's a wonderful. No, I really, and one of the things I'm really, really appreciative of you coming on today. So we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, I was going to bring awesome. up something about Alabama football. Oh my God, roll <laughs> damn time. I absolutely love, but my family's from Alabama. I've grown up a, a big fan and I am enjoying the fruits of Nick Segman's labor. I hope it lasts for a few more years, even though they just lost. <laughs> uh, but Dabo Swinney at Clemson, Lest we forget, he was a starting tight end on the 92 National Championship Alabama team. So I love Coach Sweeney, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm happy for him. But, yeah, uh, I love, love Alabama. I got the tattoos to prove it. <laughs> so where can um, – anything you want to put out there? Where can people find you? I'm going to tell yeah, you. Yeah, if you go to uh, burning, burningshield.com, if you want to read more about my story, my book, 
and uh, inquire about having me speak. It, it truly is something I, I love to do. You can simply Google my name. I know it's hard to spell, and you'll get a ton of pictures and, and uh, stories all the way back from 2001 uh, about the, the cars and the work we did on those to make officers safe, uh, working on fixing the taxi industry that was out of control here in Phoenix, and just everything. I mean, my entire life is on the internet if people want to <laughs> find it. But my website, my email, uh, you can, I, and I answer all my own emails, uh, my Instagram, my Twitter. If people want to get in, in touch with me and say something, Yes, you do, and I'll, I'll, right I'll attest to that one. That's how I got in touch. <laughs> Bam. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm very, uh, very easy to get a hold of. And, uh, again, I am, uh, I, I am the most blessed, lucky person in the world to trade places with anybody. So, uh, looking forward to each and every new day that I have. Now I'm going to post all your links and everything up onto my Facebook page, my Instagram, might throw some Twitter out there. I'm not sure, yeah, but you could also, right. I'll have your full spelling, your name and everything. The book is burning shield, Jason Sheckerly story by Landon Napoleon on Avery press. There's on Kindle and it's on Amazon now. So, Hey Jason, I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you, Jason. Thank you for everything you're doing. I wish you best of luck with your podcast. Thank you for your service and your positivity. You're making a great difference in this world. Uh, don't let anything deter you. You're doing, you're doing a wonderful job.